Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, we are back in our uh, study, our survey of church history, looking once again at the life and influence of Augustine of Hippo. Uh, we began last month uh, with his confessions, at least the autobiographical part of it that takes us from essentially his birth up to uh, his conversion there in the city of Milan. Um, we picked up the story of Augustine this afternoon. Uh, before we begin and dive in, uh, we open with a reading from Scripture. So if you'd open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll go ahead and read the whole chapter this afternoon. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Amen. All right, well, as is our custom, we will uh, begin our time in addition with a prayer taken from church history. And since we are covering Augustine... We will return once again to his confessions. And this prayer, which is an excellent prayer, but as we will see as we get to the second half of our study this afternoon, a prayer that caused a lot of controversy uh, in Augustine's day. But it's a good prayer, and so we will, uh, we will begin by praying it together. So if you'll uh, bow your heads with me and join me as we unite our hearts in prayer after the words of St. Augustine. Lord, there can be no hope for me except in your great mercy. Give me the grace to do as you command 
and command me to do what you will. You command us to control our bodily desires, for a man loves you so much the less, if besides you he also loves something else which he does not love for your sake. O love ever burning, never quenched, O charity, my God, set me on fire with your love. You command me to be self-controlled. Give me the grace to do as you command, and command me to do what you will. Amen. All right, and uh, just uh, before we get going, um, did everybody get a copy of the handout as they walked in? Does anyone need a copy? Hopefully not. Well, we have one here. Okay, let's, uh, let's dive in. If you were to take the most complete collection of Augustine's writings that have been translated into English, I say the most complete. It's not yet complete. They're still working on it. It's a work in progress. But at, when it's finished, um, the complete writings of Augustine in English will span 49 volumes. If anyone has told you they've read everything Augustine wrote, they are a liar, most likely. Now these 49 volumes include letters and sermons, Bible commentaries, and his major theological works, works like the Confessions that we talked about last month, the City of God, which we'll talk about next month, Lord willing, and on the Trinity. In addition, you'll typically find Augustine's writings divided up according to the different controversies that he addressed throughout his life. There are writings against the Manichaeans, and if you were um, blessed enough to be with us last month, you know a little bit about the Manichaeans. We're not going to spend any more time with them, um, but they're out there if you want to read those. Uh, there are the writings against the Donatist and the writings against the Pelagians. And while each of these could rightly fill up an entire session in our church history survey, um, we'll be covering this afternoon the Donatist controversy in which Augustine develops uh, his doctrine of the church and the Pelagian controversy where Augustine's doctrine of grace came to its full fruition. Well, when we last left Augustine, he had been baptized in the church of Milan by Ambrose in 387 at the age of 33. His mother, Monica, died shortly after, and he and his companions were on a ship headed back home to Africa, determined to live out the rest of their lives as contemplative monks. Well, almost immediately, Augustine began writing, and it didn't take long for the story of the conversion of the imperial rhetorician out of the delusions of Manny to the Orthodox Christian faith, it didn't take long for that story to spread throughout the, the entire empire. In 389, Augustine called on a friend in the city of Hippo. And while there, he sat in on a Sunday morning service at the local church. Now, at the time, the church was overseen by an aged bishop named Valerius. And when he saw Augustine in attendance that Sunday morning, he began to appeal to the congregation about the great work that had to be done there in the city of Hippo and how an aged bishop like himself was too frail to do it all alone by himself. And, oh, by the way, we're happy to have the most learned and talented Augustine here in our midst this morning. Wouldn't it be great if someone like him were to come along and serve us and to minister in our midst? And all of a sudden, all the eyes in the room turn and fix on Augustine. Now, eventually, the, uh, the, the cries of the crowd um, went out and triumph, and Augustine is compelled to stay uh, there in the city of Hippo to serve as one of their ministers. Um, he's given two years to prepare himself uh, before he's ordained a presbyter in the year 391. And when Valerius dies in 395, Augustine is the clear choice to take the bishop's spot. Augustine becomes the bishop of Hippo 
and he will serve that role until his death in the year 430. And it's as Bishop of Hippo that Augustine produces this massive literary output. Um, Don't lose sight of that. That as Augustine is engaging in these intense theological, uh, sometimes even more philosophical controversies, he's not doing it as a theologian, per se. He's not a professor at a seminary. He's the pastor of a local church. And it's out of a love and a concern for his people that leads him into these controversies and to write against the errors that he sees therein. Well, first off, we'll talk about the Donatist controversy. How many of us here have heard of the Donatist or the Donatist controversy? Okay, so a couple of us. Well, when it comes to the Donatist controversy, Augustine is plunged right into the midst of the fray when he is ordained. The Donatists were schismatics, not heretics in the technical sense of the word. A heretic is someone who denies a cardinal doctrine of the faith, like the Trinity, like uh, man's, uh, the necessity of the atonement for man's salvation, the Christ's resurrection from the dead. The Donatists believed everything that the Catholics believed about God and Jesus and salvation, but they separated themselves from the rest of the churches of the world, hence they're called schismatics, believing that all the other churches were corrupt and that the Donatist faction in Africa represented the one and only true church. As such, only their bishops were true bishops with true sacraments, and anyone coming into their ranks from outside had to be baptized again. Their baptism was the only one that counted. The Donatist schism was born out of the great persecution at the beginning of the fourth century, so almost a century before Augustine comes on the scene. It's during that persecution many professing Christians had capitulated to the demands of the empire, cursing Christ and sacrificing to the pagan idols uh, just to escape persecution. So uh, uh, some Christians had even handed over copies of the scriptures to be burned. And these were labeled trotadors, from which we get our word traitor. Uh, The word literally means one who hands over. So after the persecution, Constantine comes in. He establishes the peace of the church. Well, now a great many of these apostates uh, are flocking back to the churches, hoping to find reconciliation. And and most Christians, exhibiting a Christ-like spirit of love and mercy and forgiveness, they extended to these uh, former apostates the hand of fellowship. Of course, after a time of penitence, a period where their repentance could be proven to be genuine, um, after which time they were admitted back into the fellowship and granted access again to the Lord's table. But there were some who advocated instead a hard-lined response God, they said, God could forgive those apostates, but the church never can. They are forever barred from our fellowship. They can never take the Lord's Supper again. And when the rumor began to spread that some of the presbyters and bishops had at one time lapsed and handed over the scriptures to be burned, these hardliners departed from their fellowship and established their own separatist churches. Uh, Bishops who were at one time trotadors, they argued, could not be true bishops. And their sacraments could not be true sacraments. Not only that, but every other church that maintained fellowship with a church that had a trotador bishop, they were also anathema. And you add to this whole mix a radical racial element, the desire for an African church for Africans, free from the ecumenical influence of those churches over the sea. And over the course of time, this faction took on the name of one of its leading bishops, a man named Donatus. 
and thus came to be called Donatists. Um, we're not going to spend any time on Donatist himself. He's really a minor figure in the whole controversy. Well, by the time of Augustine's ordination, the Donatist faction was thriving in Africa. Um, the Orthodox congregation in Hippo was dwarfed by the Donatist. In fact, there's stories. Uh, Augustine would get up on Sunday morning to preach, and it's at that time the Donatist, uh, somehow catching wind that that's when, that's when he would do it, uh, they would get in their church and they would start singing. And they would drown out what Augustine was saying, so no one could hear what he was saying. That's how big the Donatist church was there in the city of Hippo. And so it was urgent that the bishop of Hippo should take aim at the Donatist schism to answer their errors. Now, in the Creed of Nicaea, we are taught to confess our faith in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And these, these can be helpful points on which to hang our thoughts about Augustine's doctrine of the church as he combats the errors of the Donatists. So we're going to take each of those in turn and consider what Augustine had to say about them. So first off, the church is one. There is not a church for the Catholics and a church for the Donatists. There is only one church, the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And he admonishes the church in Colossae, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. For Augustine, this was the great sin of the Donatist. Indeed, the sin of schism, of disrupting the peace of the church, is far worse, Augustine argued, than the sin of actually handing over the scriptures to be burned. Where is the true church to be found? Augustine says that the church is where the members of Christ are joined to one another through love of unity. And through the same love they adhere to the head, which is Christ Jesus. But the Donatists, the Donatists separate themselves from the unity of the whole. Their schism demonstrates their hatred for the body of Christ. And as the Apostle John warns us, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Second, the creed tells us that the church is holy. We're going to go through these pretty quick. It's it's kind of nuts trying to cover both of these controversies in one session, um, but we're, by the Spirit's help, we're going to do it. So we're cramming all this in. Um, if, you have, if you have questions, don't, don't hesitate to ask questions afterwards. Uh, second, the Creed tells us that the church is holy. Now, holiness conveys the, uh, the idea not only of uniqueness, a separateness from the world, but also a notion of righteousness, right? A separateness from sin, of forsaking sin, and obedience to God's commandments. Well, this was the great charge that the Donatists raised against the Catholics, that they admitted trotadors into their midst and freely associated with them, even permitting them to hold the highest offices of the church. Well, Augustine and the rest of the church would argue that these charges were false, that those bishops that were charged as being trotadors weren't, in fact, trotadors. But even so, Augustine argued that the Donatist concept of the church as holy was woefully distorted. The holiness of the church is not to be found in the ministers 
of the church. This is what they argued, that the efficacy of the sacraments depended on the holiness of the person that was, uh, that was performing them. The holiness of the church isn't even to be located in the individual members of the church, as if the church was meant to be a body of sinless perfectionists. No, the holiness of the church is nothing less than the holiness of Jesus Christ imputed to his people. Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that we are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Instead, Augustine conceived of the church as a mixed body, a field, as it were, picking up on that parable in uh, Matthew chapter 13, a field with both wheat and tares, both true believers and hypocrites, and that it must be so until the end of the age. Well, finally, we get to that uh, that third point. The creed says that the church is Catholic, and hopefully I'm not freaking anybody out by, <laughs> by using that term Catholic. Um, I've explained this before. And uh, I did include on your handout a little blurb there from the, uh, the uh, pocket dictionary of theology put out by IVP to hopefully clarify what I mean by Catholic. It's a very good term, and it's a shame that the uh, Roman Catholics have hijacked the term um, because it's kind of uh, paradoxical, um, almost contradictory. The idea of a Roman Catholic, universal Catholic, that's, that's almost a contradiction in terms. Um, Catholic means universal. Uh, the true church is one that is spread throughout the world, right? So, so this, uh, in contrast to um, the covenant people of God under the old covenant, uh, which was uh, 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 limited to a particular geopolitical kingdom upon earth, the nation of Israel, uh, in the new covenant, the people of God are uh, from every tribe and nation and tongue. Uh, the gospel has gone out until the ends of the earth. So, uh, whereas the Donatist argued that all other churches, through association with churches that supposedly had Trotador bishops, uh, they were cut off from the faith, and that the true church was now only to be found in Africa. Among them, Augustine brought to bear the whole testimony of Scripture, proving that the church was to be diffused throughout all the world. From the promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that in his seed the whole world would be blessed, to the prophecy of Isaiah, who speaks of the Christ that is to come, calling him the shoot from the stump of Jesse, and that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, not just Africa. That he will be a signal for the peoples, Isaiah says. And that of him shall the nations inquire, not just the Africans. Uh, Brother Martin brought to our attention this morning that most famous verse, right? John 3.16. For God so loved Africa that he sent his only beloved. So that's not what it says. For God so loved the world. Jesus in promising his disciples the outpouring of the Spirit, said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, in Acts chapter 1. Augustine writes, Why, heretics, do you glory in your small number if our Lord Jesus Christ was handed over to death that he might possess much by inheritance? Now, for Augustine, this Catholicity, as it were, is visibly demonstrated by association with those churches to which letters of the New Testament were written. So the Church of Rome, Ephesus, Corinth, and the like. Augustine says, what could be more erroneous or more absurd than for Donatists, when they read those epistles, to say, peace to thee, and to be separated from the peace of those churches to which the epistles were written. Well, finally, that brings us to the fourth point. Uh, we confess that the church is apostolic. 
Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, as we read at the beginning of our time together this afternoon, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We no longer have apostles and prophets today, despite what some denominations might be saying. But God has preserved for us the fruits of their ministry, chiefly, infallibly, in the scriptures. Where is the church to be found? Augustine writes, Let us not listen to you say that or I say this, but let us listen to the Lord says this. Certainly, there are the Lord's books on whose authority we both agree, to which we concede and which we serve. There we seek the church. There we argue our case. Now for Augustine, this apostolicity is visibly demonstrated by our communion with churches that have bishops that can trace their succession from the apostles themselves. Now, we have had a lesson on apostolic succession before. You can go back and you can listen to that if you, if you feel so inclined. Uh, Augustine counters the claims of the Donatists by listing the bishops in Rome, from Peter to the current pontiff, a man named Anastasius. And he writes this, In this order of succession, not a single Donatist bishop is to be found. Now, much more could be said about the Donatist controversy, especially regarding Augustine's doctrine of baptism, his eventual endorsement of civil authorities using the power of the sword to squash the schism. But for time's sake, we conclude this section uh, with some brief words of application. There is a lot that we can learn from Augustine's doctrine of the church. Even as we recognize, and hopefully you picked up on some of this as I was bringing it out, uh, the eventual abuse by medieval theologians who would morph it into the Roman Catholic system. Uh, The idea of papal supremacy. We'll get there someday. (laughs) We need to be on guard against this spirit of schism, of division, that can run so rampant even in our own circles. At times, we can adopt this Donatist spirit that we are the only true church, and that if you're not with us, if you're not in our ranks, then you are necessarily cut off from Christ. But Christ does not have a church for Baptists, a church for Presbyterians, a church for Anglicans, and another church for Methodists or Lutherans. There is only one church. And this one church finds its expression in various denominations and differences. And it has from the beginning. And this church is holy. Uh, In his book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, uh, uh, Trevin Wax uh, comments on the Donatist controversy. And he says this, The holiness of God would beckon us onward while the grace of God would cover our stumbles. The gospel is not for the pure and healthy, but for the losers, the failed and the flailing, the fallen and the falling. The path to the mountaintop of Christ-like virtue is a path of penitence. The victorious Christian life isn't the sinless life. It's the repentant life. The church is universal spread throughout all the world, embodying her ethnic and cultural diversities. And the church is apostolic, being built on the foundation that is the word of God. Well, let us strive for the unity and the peace of Christ's church, even in the midst of all of our differences. Well, switching gears, we come to the Pelagian Controversy. 
Now, whereas Augustine was sort of dumped in the middle of the Donatist controversy, it had been going on for almost a century before he showed up, um, the Pelagian controversy was sort of his fault, at least indirectly. Of course, the real culprit was a British monk named Pelagius. How, much, how many of us have heard of Pelagius or Pelagianism? Much more familiar with Pelagius than we are Donatism. Um, well, at this time, uh, Rome's hold over her frontier territories, like Britain, is beginning to wane. Uh, and it might have been out of fear of invading barbarians uh, that led Pelagius to flee the British Isles and to come to the city of Rome. And while in Rome, Pelagius, always an ascetic moralist, is shocked by the moral degradation that he sees all around him. The Constantinian Revolution, Constantine coming in, legalizing Christianity, and the fallout of that, um, it, it not only Christianized the Roman Empire, but also in many ways Romanized the church. It was now politically and culturally advantageous to be a Christian. And so many pagans flocked to the baptismal fount, bringing all their pagan trappings with them. They talked like pagans, lived like pagans, went to the pagan theaters and games, only now they've been baptized and so they call themselves Christians. And as Pelagius is observing all of this, wondering what the cause might be, he happens to come upon a bishop reading aloud the confessions of St. Augustine. And he heard this prayer of Augustine's read. My whole hope is in thy exceeding great mercy, and that alone, Lord, give what thou commandest, and command what thou wilt. And Pelagius lost his mind. Augustine is confessing his utter need and dependence upon the grace of God for him to be able to keep God's law. God, you can command whatever you will. Just please give me what you command. Give me the grace that I need in order to obey. Well, here, Pelagius thought, here is the problem. Uh, Pelagius writes this in a letter uh, to a virgin named Demetrius. He says, in fact, we act like lazy and insolent servants, talking back to our Lord in a contemptuous and slovenly way. That is too hard, too difficult. We cannot do that. We are only human. Our flesh is weak. What insane stupidity, Pelagius writes. What impious arrogance. We accuse the Lord of all knowledge of being doubly ignorant. We assert that he does not understand what he made and does not realize what he commands. The just one did not choose to command the impossible, nor did the loving one plan to condemn a person for what he could not avoid. The, uh, this Augustinian concept of grace not only gives an excuse to the slothful, I can't keep God's commandments because, well, he just hasn't given me the grace that I need in order to do it. But it also makes God, in a sense, responsible for human corruption. Now, Pelagius would argue that certainly God does help us. He doesn't deny grace. But, Pelagius would argue, God helps those who help themselves. And if God has commanded us to do a certain thing, then we must have the ability in and of ourselves to do so. If God has commanded us to love him with all of our, all of our being, then we must be able to. If he's commanded us to love our neighbor as ourself, we must be able to. If he's commanded us to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, well then we must be able to. Now, perhaps the most fundamental difference between Augustine and Pelagius was their view on the human will. For Pelagius, there are three elements to be seen in any moral action. First, 
the ability to do it. Second, the will to do it. And third, the act itself. Ability, will, and act. The first of these three, ability, ability comes from God. God has made it possible for us, according to Pelagius, to keep his commandments. Now, Pelagius would say that this is through grace. But for Pelagius, grace is wholly external. When Pelagius says grace, he means either the way in which God made us, in his image, what he would call the grace of creation, or the grace of illumination. He gives us the law and the gospel, which for Pelagius serve the same function, in order to show us what to do. In other words, by grace, Pelagius is saying, God has already given you all that you need in order to do his commands. The ball is in your court. He's given you the ability. You need only to choose to do it and to do it. Will and work, that's man's responsibility. And that is, uh, and in this, man is totally free. Um, well, as I said, at the heart of Pelagianism is a radical notion of free will. Man is free to do, uh, to will that which is good or that which is bad. He cannot lose the capacity for willing the good. And now it's true that through repeated actions and observation, uh, the will becomes so dull that sin can become a matter of habit. So it can feel like that we are enslaved to sin, but we're actually not. This, now this simplistic understanding of moral action, it doesn't make sense of human experience, as I'm sure all of, all of us have experienced, uh, certainly not Augustine's experience, if you remember some of the things we read from his confessions, nor does it add up to Scripture. Um, consider what Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 7. If you want to open your Bibles there. Romans chapter 7 and verse 15. This is what the Apostle Paul says. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. He says in verse 19, For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, whether or not you take Paul uh, to be speaking here of uh, his pre- or post-conversion uh, self, that's besides the point. The point is, obviously, there's something more at play here than ability, will, and work. There's something deeper going on. And for Augustine, that, that something else, that something deeper, is explained in terms of the fall. For Pelagius, the fall was nothing more than a bad example. All of us are made as free as Adam is, in a neutral state, neither predisposed to good or evil. It's just that we choose to follow Adam's example. Adam's son was observed Adam doing sinful things, and so he decided one day that he was going to start doing sinful things, and then his son saw him doing sinful things, and so, and so, and so on and so on until we come to today. Um, it's just we're observing our parents and those around us doing sinful things, and so we, we follow suit. Monkey see, monkey do. That's all that's going on for Pelagius. Um, and in fact, a few people had avoided this bad example, and managed to live sinless lives. 
Uh, He points to Noah, Job, and the Virgin Mary as examples of sinless individuals. And that Pelagius says there's nothing special about these people. Uh, They simply chose to be sinless, and we can choose to be sinless as well. But Augustine argues that the fall not only affected Adam, but all his posterity. The classic text that he appealed to was Romans chapter 5. And this is, this is where the handout will be really useful. Um, what I've given you here, so on the back page, the back page of the handout, uh, the second paragraph starts with, Sin came into the world through one man. Everyone see that? So, so this is Romans chapter 5, verses uh, 12 through 21. But if you remember what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 5, he's comparing and contrasting Adam to Christ. The condemnation that comes from being in Adam to the redemption that we have in Christ. That's what Adam is doing, or Adam, that's what uh, Paul is doing in Romans chapter 5. So what I've given you here in the handout, I've taken out that contrast so that we can see just clearly what Paul is saying happened to us in Adam. Now, later on, I encourage you, read chapter, Romans chapter 5. Read the whole thing, read verses uh, 12 through 21, and notice the contrast. Because uh, one of the things that we need to pick up on here is that to deny these things that Paul says happened to us in Adam directly affects how we understand what's going on in Christ. To deny one half is to affect our understanding of the other. That's why it's, it's crucial that we, we have these things together. But for sake of understanding the fall and what happened to us in Adam, um, I, I've given you this edited version of Romans chapter 5. So just follow along with me there as I read through it. What happened to us in Adam? Well, this is what Paul says. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Many died through one man's trespass. What was the result of that one man's sin? Judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, and sin reigned in death. As a consequence of this original sin, uh, man is not only born, dead in our trespasses and sins, but we stand condemned under the judgment of Adam's sin. We have not only inherited our first father's corruption, but also his condemnation. We aren't sinners, in other words, because we choose to sin, although we do choose to sin, but we choose to sin because we are sinners. Humanity is, as Augustine liked to put it, not in the most flattering way, a lump of sin, deserving of nothing but damnation. That is our nature as a result of Adam's disobedience. Now, um, to to open this up, uh, he goes into these four stages of human existence. Um, and I've given you this super simple chart here on the back of your handout to, uh, to reference, um, including the Latin. Hopefully you appreciate that if you want to uh, win friends and influence people. Uh, memorize the Latin, and uh, people will be super impressed. Um, uh, for sake of time, we're not going to go through all of this. But, um, of course, you see there uh, laying it out that, that man's, uh, man's condition has changed. Uh, from the way in which it was created in the garden to the fall and the effects that the fall had upon us. Uh, What happens to us when Christ comes and causes us to be born again through his grace by the Holy Spirit? 
and what will be our condition in glory. Augustine opens all that up. Again, for sake of time, we don't have time to get into, uh, into any of that. Um, so we move on here to our final point, grace. If the fall is the disease, then grace is the remedy. Pelagius sees grace as something entirely external. Uh, the Pelagians said that by grace, man is emancipated or set free from God. Uh, grace enables man to will and to act accord, uh, apart from God's influence. But for Augustine, grace is an internal change wrought by the Holy Spirit. Man is free, we have free will, but that freedom for fallen man avails only to sin. No one has anything of his own except falsehood and sin, Augustine would write. True freedom for the Christian is the freedom to be, uh, uh, to be not free to sin. Something that we attain, attain only in glory. Until then, and even after, uh, man is wholly dependent upon God's grace. God's grace must change us uh, in order for us to live lives that are pleasing to him. So in conclusion, Pelagius, Pelagius leaves Rome sometime before the Visigoths sack the city in the year 410. Uh, he briefly stays in North Africa where Augustine is, but not long enough to meet Augustine um, before he leaves to settle in Palestine uh, where he lives out the rest of his life. Uh, the Pelagian controversy extends beyond uh, Augustine and Pelagius. There are many actors as the controversy plays out across three continents. Uh, Pelagius um, is really appealing to that, that natural pull that, that, that we all have. Uh, and in one sense, I think we can understand this. We, we all understand uh, man is made in God's image. There's something, there's something good in that, right? But Pelagius' error was not to uh, fully account for what happened in the fall. Um, Pelagius would continue to insist that divine grace was necessary for salvation, but uh, again and again, Augustine effectively demonstrates that he doesn't mean what the Bible and what the church had understood grace to be. Pelagius disappears from history around 420. We don't know what ended up happening to the guy. Uh, eventually, his teachings would be condemned by the Third Ecumenical Council of Ephesus in the year 431, uh, as well as a handful of smaller regional councils. Uh, for his trouble, Augustine earns for himself the title, the Doctor of Grace. Uh, he taught that man is not only sick, in need of a cure, but that man is dead in his trespasses and sins, and is in need of a resurrection, and that God, through his grace, affects that resurrection. Salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. Again, much more can be said about the controversy, especially Augustine's views on baptism and predestination, sort of proto-Calvinism, if you will. Uh, time doesn't allow us to elaborate on these points. Um, the Bible teaches us that salvation is a gift. It's not a gift to be earned by picking ourselves up by our bootstraps um, or by, by working as hard as we can to earn a place in heaven, uh, but salvation is a gift to be received with the empty hand of faith. And with that, um, we are done. Um, unless anyone has questions about the, uh, the controversies that Augustine was engaged in. I told you it was crazy to try and cover all that.
But we did it. We did it. Uh, Lord willing, um, Brother Brandon will uh, bring to us next month uh, an overview of Augustine's magnum opus, his City of God. Um, if you want to read Augustine's uh, City of God in preparation, uh, good luck. Um, it's like 1,500 pages. Um, get an abridged version, really. You, you do yourself a favor if you get an abridged version. Um, or, uh, if you like, if you just Google uh, Haken, everyone knows who Dr. Haken is, a uh, history professor, church history professor at Southern Seminary. Uh, Google Haken and City of God. A TGC article should pop up um, where he gives you, like, these are the chapters that you should read in the City of God. And that, that, would, that would be fine as well. Um, don't, don't read the whole thing. <laughs> you drive yourself crazy reading the whole thing. No questions? We got one? All right. Not even sure if you'll be able to answer this. It's kind of just a curiosity I had in my head. So when it came to Donatists who believed um, that, it, that salvation was only for Africa, right? And kind of simplifying. Do you know, or does anybody else know, what, what did the geography of that time look like? Like, was Africa still separated by the Red Sea from, like, Yemen and Saudi Arabia? Or would those, like, did, were those countries ever considered part of the, the landmass of Africa? Or, or Do you yeah. understand kind of what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so he's, when, when they're talking about Africa, they're mainly talking about North Africa that on the Mediterranean coast. Uh, of course, there's that... I'm not super familiar with African geography either, but there's that desert there, that, that big one, <laughs> that kind of separates the, the upper and the lower. And so no, the, 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 the gospel hasn't, as far as we know, hasn't spread that far yet. Um, so he's mainly talking about northern Africa there uh, along the, the Mediterranean coast, Carthage, Hippo, Alexandria. Place. Uh, he probably wouldn't have even included Alexandria in that because that, that, that was too orthodox. That was too... Uh, probably wouldn't have included Alexandria. Yeah. All right, another another question. So would the contemporaries of Donatus and then even um, the church today looking, so you, you put in here that Donatists weren't considered heretics, just more schismatics. Yeah. So would those that held to those views be considered as brothers and sisters in Christ still? That's a good question. Um, Augustine, so, and this kind of plays into Augustine's understanding of the church that, that eventually is, is going to morph into the, the Roman Catholic understanding of the, the church being an institutional body. Um, that if you're outside of the Catholic church, if you're outside of the institution, um, then you're necessarily outside of Christ. Um, so, I don't want to underplay that, that distinction. Um, Augustine certainly wouldn't. If, if you're outside of the bond of peace, you die outside of the peace of, of the church, which the Donatists, were, they've separated themselves from the peace of, church, of the church, um, then, then you're damned. Um, so that, that was Augustine's perspective. He's not, he's not treating these, these people like brothers and sisters, although he, he might appeal to, um, what's the scripture... Um, that talks about not dealing with someone as if they're, they're a heretic, but as if they're a brother, trying to win them back. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? That yeah, sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, um, there were... A, so, um, one of the best Bible expositors um, was a Donatist named uh, Tyconius, I believe his name was, and Augustine borrows from him heavily and gives him credit. Um, he loves Tychonius, at least his, his understanding of hermeneutics and how to understand the Bible. So, so he's willing to, to uh, appropriate Donatist, certain Donatist understandings in that way, but he's, he's not treating them as if they are brothers and sisters in the, Christ, in, in, in the Lord. And, and the way that it was worded with them not being heretics but schismatics, that's kind of why I was, yeah, I was yeah. wondering. So last question, and I'll give this back to Ken, and he'll make sure I don't grab it anymore. 
Um, <laughs> is that? Is there a group today that we would consider, at least in that sense, where they're not heretics, schismatics, and is there a group today, knowing nothing new under the sun, that we would kind of, that we might label or kind of put in that same category? That is an excellent question. Um, say it again. What, 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 what did you say? Seventh-day Adventist. Yeah. Um, I... So are you talking about someone that we would consider brothers and sisters in the Lord, but are separated? Not, so, I mean, I, what, what I had in my mind as I was going through this, uh, probably because of my, my friendship with John Eubank, is the Church of Christ. Uh, they, they claim that they are the only true church. If you're not baptized, and, and you've got to get fully, like if, you, if a toe pops out, then that's not good. You've got to get fully dunked in order to be baptized in their church. And if you're not baptized in their, their church, that doesn't count. Uh, you're not saved. Um, that, that's, that's an extreme form of that, that same schismatic spirit. Um, and, and I think we do see that a lot in, in a lot of um, even uh, what we would call evangelical fundamentalist groups. Um, these extreme groups that would, that would say that if, if, you're not, if you're not a Baptist or what have you, then, then you're, not a, you're not a true Christian. Um, I think we do see that spirit at work um, in churches today. Yeah, maybe other people can kind of give some other examples too. Um, well, my question, I had a question, but the, just on that, I mean, like you, you made the distinction early on about those who are heretics or not, those who hold to something that undermines a cardinal truth of the faith that puts them outside of salvation. Uh, with Seventh-day Adventists, with Church of Christ, they do, they do, like, I'm not, they're certainly very possible believers in their midst, yeah. but their core tenets, from my understanding, deny the gospel. Um, in the sense of bringing in man's works, yeah. right, as, as something that brings them to God. So in those areas, I, I would say you'd have to consider them outside of, um, you know, they claim Christ, but not brothers and sisters. But, you know, there are people that, uh, you know, different congregations um, that maybe say charismatic car- congregations or, you know, people... Um, they have very different view of the covenant. You know, we we believe in very cardinal, uh, in the the true points of the gospel, uh, who God is, who Christ is, who we are as sinners, and what it what it takes for us to be saved by God. Like we agree in those things. We're we have huge differences enough to keep us in different buildings, different congregations, and and unless one or two parties change their views, that'll always remain. But it doesn't necessarily mean we're not brothers and sisters. We can continue, you know. So, I don't know. Just a thought on that. But my the question I had, let's see if I can remember it now. Um, oh, with the Donatists. So, the, the major thing that arose was on their disagreement uh, with the Roman Catholic Church on accepting those who had, uh, how did you pronounce them? Tratadors? Tratadors, Tratadors, right? And I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah, (laughs) Tratadors. It's Latin, I don't know Latin. So initially that was something that different people disagreed on, and it ended up putting them in different places. You're saying that the Donatists still believe, like if if the, the, I don't know, overall belief of the Donatists they stayed in line with orthodoxy as far as you know, but that was a major component. It was just, it was a haven, if you will, for those who had denied the faith at one point but have come back. Um, I guess part of that question is, I'd imagine, based on the size of the church you're saying that Donatism became and whatnot, there must have been other people within the midst that were not Tratadors, right, who had come to faith and had only been in Donatistic churches, had known nothing else but weren't necessarily Tratadors themselves, right? I guess that was the question. Um, It wasn't, the Donatist church weren't just made up of those who uh, uh, denied, handed over Bibles uh, in the midst of persecution, and then came back into the church. So, is that right? 
so I, I, I'm not sure. Um, so the Donatists wouldn't have those people in their midst. Okay. So the people that had handed over the scriptures. Okay. So yeah. So they were on that side of the fence. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, but other than that, they were in line. It was that cardinal point, that one point, that put them in at separation. Uh. Yes. Yeah. As far as the other doctrines of the faith, mm-hmm. there, there's nothing else that they that they hold to that is. Uh, uh, heterodox or unorthodox. Um, uh, I think I'm under, if I'm understanding. Okay. So maybe in that in that case, I, I think that answered my question. But uh, does does that mean that they believed that the church that now was accepting those who came back in after after denying the faith was a polluted church? Is that was that their problem? Like what? Yeah. Was it just became an untrue church because um, the church is not to accept those back in? Who... Well, and, and not only not only that, but the idea that some of the bishops, the leaders of these churches, were accused of being trotadors, of having cursed Christ, handed over the scriptures to be burned, uh, and therefore, uh, if these men aren't holy, then they can't perform proper ordinances. They can't baptize. They can't offer the Lord's, the Lord's Supper. So, so it, it's, it, it's partly that they're, they're admitting these people into their midst. Uh, there's another level there where they, they see these people in leadership. Um, and of course, the, the, the Catholics are going to say, no, that, that accusation is, is false. That these people hadn't been proven to be trotadors. They hadn't handed over the scripture. That allegation was proven wrong. That, that's what they would argue. Um, because even um, if, well, maybe I shouldn't, I don't want to misspeak, but yeah. Um, does, that, does that answer the question? Yeah. Any other questions, thoughts, comments? Sorry if I missed it, but did you mention anything about, I know the term is often thrown around nowadays about semi-Pelagian, mm-hmm. and or do you know any of the core tenets or what would classify someone to be that? Um, yeah, so semi-Pelagianism is a polemical term that gets thrown around uh, during the Reformation era, um, kind of like everyone that disagrees with me is a neo-Nazi. <laughs> Everyone that disagrees with me is a semi-Pelagian, you know. Um, historians, church historians, don't think that's the best term to use. But uh, if we're going to identify a group of semi-Pelagians, it would be those people in the generations toward the end of Augustine's life and, and just afterward, people like John Cassian, um, who... Uh, disagreed with Augustine's understanding of predestination. Um, that, that, that's their rub. They, they're in line with everything else, the fallenness of man, the necessity of grace. Um, maybe they believe that the grace of God is sort of a pervenient grace, you know, that, that liberates all people equally, and that men can then choose to uh, cooperate with that grace or to reject it. Um, but the semi-Pelagians would be uh, historically identified as people who take issue with Augustine's predestinarianism. Yeah. Good question, though. All right. Oh, well, we're going to close with uh, hymn number 432, Jesus, What a Friend. So if you would uh, uh, find in your Trinity hymnal number 432... And when you find it, please stand with us.